Last night, we traveled a few thousand years in time. Tonight, we only have to travel about 600, so everyone breathe deep. It was a long uphill climb from a flood, a story restart, and a new family on the face of the earth. The same commission, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, that the image and glory of the family God would be seen everywhere, huh? We made that climb through the foundations of God's heart, initiating with man to restore trust, a a kind of marriage covenant trust with a simple man named Abram. And we felt the deep drama and initiation of God coming to him and vulnerably disclosing himself and winning his heart and covenant. And we watched as this man said yes and put his confidence and faith in the goodness of God. That covenant traveled from generation to generation with this powerful blessing bringing forth the redemptive purposes of God to have a people, a family for himself. That covenant was re-articulated and initiated on a mountain called Mount Sinai after God established himself not just as a tribal deity, but as the God of heaven and earth who made a way where there was no way and delivered them from hundreds of years of slavery to mature and grow up into sonship. The covenant people of God. That generation were not careful to follow the commands and covenant of the Lord at Mount Sinai. And so they wandered until they all passed away in a desert. But a new generation arose. And Moses, a man, on the, at the end of his life, on fire with the love of God, began to proclaim in three beautiful talks in the book of Deuteronomy a new covenant law to a new generation standing on the banks of their promise. The reason I bring this up is we're heading into the second part of the development. And the uphill climb through the foundations of the covenant people to the golden age where we stood there with oil being poured over a young 16-year-old boy. That climb to the golden age of Israel is about to tumult down the mountain. And the downhill climb will not be easy. The tension of the song arises. And it seems that, like in our lives, the farther that they got from the original place of his delight in the garden the fainter the song of the Father's love and kingdom family got in their ear. 
and the louder the song of diminishment, the pride and the guilt and the shame began to cover them and the loud song of diminishment that they were worthless, that they had to do something to earn God's love. And the fainter that the song of the kingdom father got from their ears and from their heart, the more they began to buy in to the tragedy of other loves and high places and the worship of so many lesser things. Oh, I long that the song of diminishment is absolutely trumped in this room tonight by the song of the kingdom family, the kingdom father. (laughs) I want to read this in the law of Deuteronomy as Moses proclaims in his heart, because this will be the plumb line, the measuring rod. That many will come and call back the people into covenant marriage with God by. So let's read this, Deuteronomy 29. Here he stands, Moses, before a new generation, standing on the banks, waiting to go into the promised land. And he says this, These are the terms of the covenant of the Lord commanded to Moses to make with the Israelites in Moab, in addition to the covenant he had already made with them, At Horeb or Mount Sinai. Moses summons all of the Israelites and he says to them. Your eyes have seen all that the Lord did in Egypt to his officials into the land. With your own eyes you saw the great trials and the miraculous signs and wonders. But to this day the Lord has not given you a mind that understands or eyes that see or ears that hear. During those 40 years I led you through the desert and your clothes did not wear out, nor did your sandals of your feet. You ate no bread and drank no wine or fermented drink. And he goes down saying he... He triumphed over their enemies. In verse 12, you are standing here today in order to enter into a covenant with the Lord, a covenant the Lord is making with you this day and sealing with an oath to confirm to you this day as his people. He may be your God as he promised you. He swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am making this covenant with an oath, not only with you, but with those who are standing with us today in the presence of the Lord, and also with those who are not here today. And he goes on to say, if you do not keep this covenant, all of the curses of this new book will come upon you. Calamity and disaster. You will be driven from the land. Oppression will take over. Your crops will fail. Everything will go wrong with you. And then turn to Deuteronomy 30. And graciously he looks at them and says, but if you ever turn away, if you would so desire to come back to me, I would take you back for I am the God of mercy. And listen to what he says in verse 11. What I am commanding you today is not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. Verse 14, know the word or the song is near you. It is in your mouth. It is in your heart that you may obey. See, I set before you today life and prosperity or death and destruction. The tree of life or the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Do you feel that? 
For I command you today to love the Lord your God and walk in his ways and keep his commands, keep his decrees and laws, and then you will live and you will increase and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. Verse 19, this day I call heaven, I call earth as witnesses against you. I've set before you life and death, blessings and curse. Now choose life. Choose me. And listen to who says, so that your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God. Listen to his voice. Hold fast to him for the Lord is your what? Life. Choose life for God is your life. The tree of life is yours. God is yours in covenant. Be his people. Be his bride. I want to trace very quickly the presence of the Lord in the Ark of the Covenant through a trajectory. When God said, I will make a covenant so that I can do what with you? Dwell with you in tents. That was the heartbeat of the Father. And when he came to dwell with them, it says the Ark of the Covenant was there and his presence came and dwelt. The glory of God dwelt on the covenant in the tabernacle. And I want to trace quickly the trajectory, the the journey of the ark of the covenant through the story that I told last night leading up to David. And then we'll head in back to that moment where the oil is poured over David. Does that sound okay? Numbers 10.33. Israel carried the ark for 40 years in the wilderness following the cloud and the fire of God's presence. Wherever the presence went, the people went. Let us learn. I love that. Even in their testing and their wilderness. He said, I humbled you those 40 years. I made you hunger so that you would cry out to me and you would learn. Man does not live on bread alone, but every word that proceeds from my mouth. You live by me. I will feed you every day. And one will come later who says, I am the bread of life. And the ark was with them all those 40 years. Joshua 1 through 6. Israel carries the ark over the Jordan into battle in Canaan. And that is what causes the Jordan River to move all the way back to the city of Adam. Judges 18.31, for 400 years, the ark found a home at Shiloh during the period of the judges where there was apostasy. You remember the cycle of apostasy where they would turn from the Lord. He would raise up a deliverer. When they repented, he would, the deliverer would send their enemies fleeing and then they would move back into apostasy and idolatry once again. And during that time, the presence of God was resting in Shiloh. But during the latter years of the judges, they decided that maybe the ark of the presence of the Lord could be their good luck charm to get their own way in victory. They used God's presence for their own gain in presumption. And God said, not the way you use my presence. And the Philistines capture the ark. And when they capture the ark, it begins to wreak utter havoc on the Philistine uh, cities, right? Which is pretty crazy. In 1 Samuel 5 and 6, the ark was trouble for the Philistines in Ashdod at the temple of Dagon. In Gath and Ekron, tumors break out everywhere the ark goes, which is absolutely crazy. And they decided to let two cows carry this crazy 
possessed thing into the desert. They're like, get it away. We're setting it on cows. We're letting it go. These, these couple of Israelite Hebrews find it, and it's one of the worst days of their life. They're like, oh, what is this on two cows? They open it up, and 70 of them are, die in the presence of the Lord. And they say, who can dwell with God? Like, what in the world? And then they bring the ark, and you'll see this in 1 Samuel 6.20. The men of Beth Shemesh, oh, this is where um, they say, who can stay in the presence of the Lord? And then 1 Samuel 7, 1 through 2, the ark remains in kareth Jerem for 20 years in the house of Abinadab. And this is the trajectory of the presence of the Lord. We talked about Samuel, we talked about Saul, and now we're standing there with David. I want to take you into David's life. He's anointed a man after God's own heart. I'm looking for a heart. You guys are about to feel the zeal of the Lord. I want to ask you tonight to step into the story. And when I say that, I mean step into the living emotions of the God who spoke from Sinai saying, I am a jealous husband. I want you to step with me into the depth of his emotion as we travel in these 600 years. This will change your life. David is anointed a man after God's heart. This is what God is looking for. His promised land is the core of our being. His promised land is the core of our being. And God, in any generation, when he finds a heart he can live in, he takes it every time. Immediately, this Giant Philistine, who you might think this story is just absolutely outlandish, this nine-foot behemoth of a man, is taunting by himself the entire armies of Israel. And little shepherd David isn't even invited or counted worthy to come out to the battle except to come bring food from the house. Here's snacks for the, for the soldiers and boys, right? And he comes out there one day, and he's been hanging out, worshiping God on the hillside, and when he gets out there, and I want to bring to attention, I'm not going to tell the whole story, but I want to tell this part because I think it's so significant about how the enemy works, the song of diminishment. When he gets out there, his brothers look at him and say, what are you doing here? And he says, what is this giant doing defying the living God? And he goes and he says, I can t- is no one from Israel going to... Like, stand against this man? Are you kidding? And they begin to put him down. And his brothers look into his eyes and listen to what they say. The exact opposite thing God has said about him just a little bit earlier. His brother looks him in the eyes and says, You have a wicked heart. The enemy will always come to your greatest strength and place of destiny with the exact song of diminishment, the antithesis of your calling. God is after building you up in love 
and the enemy comes to accuse God before your eyes and make you feel worthless in his sight. That is the strategy of the enemy. And we know the story. David rises above the song of diminishment and he believes he is actually a favored son of the father. And with the enemy's own weapon, he cuts his head off. He uses the enemy's authority in redemption and slays Goliath with his own means of killing him. I love that, that the strategy of the enemy absolutely backfires. And he is prized in the eyes of Israel from that point, but he will start an absolutely wild 13-year journey at this point of running for his life, at which point a crazy group of ragtags will join him. He's hiding in caves, and yet he will not take God's destiny into his own hands by his own strength. How many times in the story have we seen people show up and try to take it in their own strength? And here's David worshiping, resting, fleeing for his life, and his seminary of training and identity and theology becomes fleeing for his life from cave to cave with a bunch of stinky dudes. And they have some wild adventures. This is from like 16 to 30. When David's 30 years old, which is so beautiful when you look at the repeating patterns of the story, he comes to Judah. And at that point in the story, he is anointed as the king just over Judah. And this will become the line of the seed that is favored by God. For seven more years, however... He's unable to take the throne fully. And there's all of this discrepancy happening. And just before you get into 1 Kings, Saul takes his own life. His sons perish with him and his armor bearer. And at that point, David realizes it's time to become the king of all of Israel. And he goes and he's anointed and they rally to him and they say, you are our king at 37 years old. When David becomes the king of all of Israel, he's been practicing this deep devotion in which the Psalms are mostly written to his uh, credit. There was this place in the heart of David that was singing the song that he was hearing from the garden. He was singing the song of trust, no matter what he saw. He was singing the song of identity, no matter what he felt. He was singing the song of the worth of God above all things. He was singing the God of the cosmos, and yet he was realizing something, that the God of the cosmos had a mind full of him. This was the meditation, the worshiper heart of a king. In the making. And God looked on this heart of the king and he said, Worship is what will fill the earth and rule the end of the day. I love that. You can read through the Psalms and you can get the inner journals and meditations, the song of kingdom family. Even when David felt in his lowest moments the song of, You're worthless, earn it. 
perform. He began to rise above that and agree with a deeper song from a more ancient place that was the song of his father's love of kingdom family. Oh my goodness, there's a key. David immediately gets filled with the zeal of the Lord. And guess what he wants when he becomes king of Israel? Two things. I want Jerusalem back. He goes, he drives out the enemies of the Lord from Jerusalem. And at this point, the golden age of Israel, the land becomes Israel's. The problem with Joshua not having done that is it left people in the land that would turn their hearts from the pure, undefiled, undivided worship of God as their only love and turn them into those with divided hearts. Now David fulfills the heart of the Father and there is peace and he takes Jerusalem. But David says, wait a second, I'm not just looking for a home in the natural. I am looking for the presence of God. And he goes to Abinadab's house. And most of you will be familiar with this story. And he says, I'm bringing the presence of the Lord back to Jerusalem. Do you feel his zeal to be with the Lord? That the nation would have an undivided heart of affection. And there's this crazy story where he goes to get it and the guys do not understand what the presence of the Lord is all about. And they don't come into alignment and agreement with the way that God has set it up to Moses in the law. And they touch it in an unworthy way and they're struck dead. And David's like, I am not bringing this thing back to uh, Jerusalem. Just you keep it here. Keep it at this guy's house, right? And he goes back. He leaves it there three months. He hears reports that the blessing and favor of the Lord is on the house where the Ark of the Presence is. He goes, I want your favor, Father. I want your favor, God. And he goes back there and he sets up and he coaches them how they are going to bring the presence back into Jerusalem. And they make this long walk back. And every six steps, can you imagine they do a sacrifice. And the whole time back, David is dancing to the point, ripping his clothes off in the sight of Israel as the, as the king, worshiping the Lord, spinning violently, taking off his shirt. And six more steps, and they slaughter animals. And six more steps, and it says they're rejoicing. Blood is being shed and spilled all over the road, all the way to Jerusalem. As he dances before the Lord, bringing back the glory of God to his people. What is worship? His wife looks at him and says, you are crazy. Should a king act like this in the presence of his servants? And he looks at her and he says, I serve the Lord God who took me out of the flock and set me as the king. And I will become even more undignified than this. I am not embarrassed in my own eyes. But he says, but before those servants, I will be honored because I'm a worshiper. 
unfortunately, uh, she isn't able to have children from that point on for the rest of her life for that comment. I have no idea what that was about. It's a crazy moment in the story. He restores the worship and presence of God back. And David is on a roll similar to Moses. And he's living in this palace. And he looks around one day as he's sitting there eating the choice food of the king. And he goes, God, what in the world am I doing living in this palace? And why? in the world are you living in a little tent? And something in that meditation moved the heart of an eternal God. Nathan comes to him and looks at him and says, whatever is in your mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. Do you believe that your little mind, that your alignment with the heart of the Lord actually moves him to the point where he says, go ahead. And you're going to find out how crazy this is through the conversation they're about to have. God says, excuse me, David. I'm quite happy living in a tent. I've never asked anyone to build me a palace like you have. <laughs> David's like, oh, um, sorry. <laughs> right? God comes and says, excuse me, I'm humble. I didn't ask you to build me a very fine place to live. I chose a tent just like you guys live in. I am the God of the everyday center of your life. I move with you. I live in your midst. But he says, essentially, because you've desired this, you win. And here's how you win. He says, oh yeah, you want to build a house for me? How about this? I would like to build a house for you. This is the most astounding exchange you can imagine. David is humbled to the core, and God proceeds to blow his mind. He says, oh yeah, yeah, okay. I'll let you build that house for me. You've moved my heart. Sure but I'm after something. He says, I'm not going to let you build it because you shed too much blood. I'm going to let your son build it. He, he will be a man of peace. And crazy enough, this son is the redemptive son after David's most tragic mistake. When he completely, much worse than Solomon, botched the story. And covenanted after a man, a man's wife. Oh my goodness, that moment when he kills Uriah, he takes Bathsheba, he sleeps with her. Nathan again comes to him in that moment and tells him this little story about a rich man who takes a traveler's one lamb. And David arises in anger and says, kill that man. And Nathan looks at him and he says, you're that man. 
David falls down and says, I've sinned against God. Instead of saying, honor me in the sight of the people, he falls and says, it's against God I've sinned. I don't need to be great in the eyes of the people. Nathan says, you're forgiven. But tragedy is going to run through your household in broad daylight. And David enters into a seven-day fast, asking for this son that is born from his wife to be saved. But the son dies. And he gets up, and he stops mourning, and he says, it's in the Lord's hands. And God's comfort to him in redemption is the son that will build the temple is the son, Solomon, that will come from Bathsheba. What kind of a God are we talking about here? In your greatest weakness, God brings forth your legacy. In your greatest disaster, God reweaves redemption. Who are we talking about here? Do you think of God that way for your life? God says, Solomon will build this temple in this conversation. And then he looks at him, and we've got to read this. This is 2 Samuel chapter 7. You've got to mark this up in your Bible. Turn with me to it. Starting at verse 8. Tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from following the flock to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone. And I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great like the names of the greatest men of the earth. I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can give, can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since that time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you. Do you hear that word again from Genesis 12? who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father. He will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod of men and with floggings inflicted by men. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed before you. And here's verse 16, the eternal covenant of God. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. David says, I want to build you a nice house to live in. And God says, I want a family to dwell in, and I'm going to give you a king to bring it forth forever. What in the world? This awesome rearticulation of Abraham's promise, of the covenant at Sinai, David has just entered the story in radical fashion, hey? I want to look at the preparations David makes for the temple. 
David knows that he is not allowed to build the temple. But he sets his heart, and you can read this in Chronicles. Look at the latter part of Chronicles, and you will see this absolutely amazing, extravagant display of David's affection to have a place for the Lord to dwell forever. David chooses the location in Jerusalem when he encounters an angel on the threshing floor, and this is the exact same place that the father and the son watched a father and a son almost have to sacrifice. This will be the place of encounter. It's amazing. He will choose the place in Jerusalem, 1 Chronicles 21. He then provides huge amounts of resources. I mean, this is absolutely wild. I want to just read a little bit in 1 Chronicles 22 because I think it's fascinating. He says in verse Three, he provided a large amount of iron to make nails for the doors and gateways and fittings and more bronze than could be weighed. He provided more cedar logs than could be counted. Verse 5, David said, My son Solomon is young and inexperienced, and the house has to be built, for the Lord should, it should be of great magnificence and fame and splendor in the sight of all the nations. Therefore, I will make preparations. So David made extensive preparations before his death, and even costly preparations, he will say. I love this. He goes on, and it begins to describe the incredible things that he will do. He'll provide like an uncountable amount of gold. And then he says it's not enough to just bring the offering of the people. He lays his own personal fortune and legacy into the temple and lays it all down and then begins to rejoice before God that he got to give everything to where the presence would be. Come on. And then the people burst into offering and they bring an uncountable offering to the Lord and they begin to rejoice that they can give everything to where the presence will be. Can you believe this? Then it says that he puts people in place, divisions of priests, singers, gatekeepers, treasurers, officials, and the army. I love the way David begins to order because he knows his son is incapable and his son begins to watch him in this process. There's this generational blessing and impartation that is happening. David said, I can't build it, but I will lay my life down for the destiny I don't get to walk into. Do you feel the heart of fathers and mothers? Let this be the heart of our generation for the one coming behind us. To make a place where God can be at home with all of our lives, with all of our resources. I love this. He then, in 1 Chronicles 28, it says, gets a download from the Holy Spirit about the exact plans of the temple. Can you picture David in prayer and the Holy Spirit begins to encounter him and starts to show him the beautiful magnificence of the place that he will live. And he brings it to Solomon. He says, here's what the Holy Spirit has put in me. Isn't that wild? The Holy Spirit could come upon people at certain moments in certain times and give his imagination and delegate his authority. And this is what happens when God wants to come and dwell. I absolutely love it. 
Then he charges his son Solomon. He says, have courage. Arise and build the place where God will dwell and he will be with you. Don't you love that charge of a father to a son? Arise and build. David gave his personal fortune and took an enormous offering. Okay, so Solomon begins to enter into this. David will pass away. Right before that, there's an incredible battle over the throne. David goes through all kinds of heartbreak and tragedy as he watches his family tear themselves to pieces. Oh, why did that have to be in this story? But Solomon is established and the favor of God is on him. And he begins a seven and a half year process with something like 183,000 workers to begin working on the temple. He uses the resources his father has stored up, the wisdom his father has imparted, and he begins to enact the building for the place of God. And can you imagine the day when the temple is finished? And when it's finished, it says this, the priests withdrew from the holy place and the cloud filled the temple of the Lord and the priests could not perform their service because the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Go to 2 Chronicles chapter 8 with me. Actually, go to... uh, Chapter 6. Solomon will dedicate this temple to the Lord, and God fills it up with his presence. And then look at verse 18. Will you go to the next? This is in Kings up here. But will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain you. How much less this temple that I have built. God will so love this revelation and this question. He's looking at the magnificence of the temple. The glory of the Lord filling the space. They begin to sing the national anthem of Israel, which is this. The Lord is good and his love endures forever. The national anthem that breaks the song of diminishment from the Garden of Eden. Did God really say, no, the Lord is good? No, his love endures forever. This will be our song. They would sing it again and again and again. Can you imagine if the national anthem of this nation was the Lord is good and his love endures forever instead of God bless America? This was their anthem. And he looks and he says, What? The, I read, I heard my father singing. The glory of God fills the heavens. His love is higher than the heavens. He says, I know what you're like. Are you kidding me? You really think your glory is going to fill this little thing that I've built? It took him seven and a half years. And he had this thing burning in his heart. And God loved it. And God came to him and said to him, My eyes and my heart will be open to this place forever. I will hear the prayers prayed in this place. But he says, If you turn away from me and do not follow my covenant in Deuteronomy, 
you can come back to this temple and if you humble yourself and turn from your wicked ways, will I not hear from heaven and come and heal the land and bring a blessing? This is the moment. But he says, but if you turn away and your sons disobey me, this magnificent temple would become a byword in the eyes of the nations. You will be driven from the land and it will be like Sodom. Oh my goodness. And he meets them in that place. But at this point, the glory of God has filled the temple. Unfortunately, Solomon is about to enter into the three big no-nos from Deuteronomy. Those were, one is very interesting, horses. (laughs) A king with many horses. And, uh, and, uh, (laughs) um, a king with many horses. And the reason for that was do not put your identity into what cannot save you. You're, you will be prideful and you will think that you can do this thing without God the king. The next was lots of wealth. And it said, I mean, you read the statistics on his wealth and it is absolutely outlandish. You can move. I'm not quite there. Um, keep going back. And uh, he... Uh, So he enters into that space, and it's just absolutely horrendous. The wealth that he compiles and the way that it turns his heart. And the last one is the big one, and that is wives. And it says he takes like a thousand wives to himself. You look at the trajectory of the story from the garden. Six generations in, the first man takes two wives. And here is Solomon, who has asked for wisdom. And I wonder, what if he would have asked to be Loved by God, or some other question. I don't know. But wisdom doesn't suffice. And he ends up writing Ecclesiastes, having tried everything, and there's a beautiful hope where he realizes at the end it's only God. But not before the story begins to turn and tear, and it becomes brutal and intense. So here's what happens, and you can, you can wait just a second. Go to 1 Kings 12. I want to set this up for a second. Solomon, for the building of the temple, um, he initiated the temple by putting people into slavery. And this is what is so hard about the story, is because the just, caring, free society that God was trying to set up, that they were denied in Egypt, has come full circle around, and now you see Solomon participating in it. And when Solomon goes the way of his fathers and rests with the Lord, his son, Rehoboam, comes into the picture. And here's what's happening, and this is the trajectory we're going to follow in just a second. There's going to be Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, and Jeroboam, who is one of the officials of Solomon. And this is a wild moment in the story. A prophet comes to Jeroboam and says this to him. He says, Israel has committed all kinds of adultery in my sight. 
And therefore, I'm ripping the kingdom out of Rehoboam's hand, out of Solomon's hand even. And ten of the tribes are going to go to you, Jeroboam. And two tribes, the line of David, will stay with Solomon because I will honor David's faithfulness. But he says, I will not remove Solomon because I'm honoring David. But when David's son comes, when Solomon's son comes, all sorts of havoc are about to break out. Then he looks at Jeroboam, believe it or not, and he says, I want to give you an eternal dynasty like David. He says this to Jeroboam. Now, this is going to drive you crazy in just a second when you see what happens. When you know God has come to a man, Jeroboam, and said to him, I'm going to give you the same kind of legacy I gave David. And here's what Jeroboam's response will be. Okay, back to the story with Rehoboam. I hope I'm not losing you. Rehoboam is the son of Solomon. And here's what he does. He's this young, burgeoning leader. And let us take note of this in our generation. He comes and he's got two sets of counsel. He's got the younger generation's counsel and he's got the older generation's counsel. And he goes and he says, what should I do with the slaves? And guess what the younger generation says? Assert your zeal and your will and make it harder on them so they will respect you as the new king. I'm telling you, this is often what happens when the church passes from one generation to another. The young leader thinks he has to dishonor everything that's gone before to cut off the remembrance and the legacy so everyone thinks they're important and they have authority. Oh my gosh. The older generation says, lighten the load. Don't do it. And Rehoboam, Solomon's son's heart, is turned to his own pride. He listens to the voice of the younger generation saying, assert your own fame. And what begins to happen at this point is a revolt. And God's heart in the covenant people is ripped in two. Ten tribes in the north, two tribes in the south. This is very important. Mark your Bible, 1 Kings 12. Because this is where, when you're reading, you're going to get very confused if you don't understand this. I, I would actually encourage you to get a red highlighter and a blue highlighter, okay? And wherever it says Israel, highlight it red because there is about to be utter evil and carnage all over the place. When he says Israel, from now on through the prophets, you are going to know he's talking about the northern ten tribes that follow in the way of Jeroboam, the one who revolted against Solomon. Whenever you see Judah, right, you know he's talking about the line of David, two tribes that will follow the dynasty and the lineage of David's everlasting covenant. Okay? Listen to what Jeroboam does as his first response to leading the ten tribes and God's initiation to give him a covenant just like David. He goes and he says, well, I'm not allowed to go to Jerusalem anymore, so how will the nations worship that I'm leading? How, I mean, how will the tribes worship that I'm leading? So he says, here's what I'll do. I'll set up in the high place I'll set up a place of worship 
in Dan, and I'll set one up in Bethel. And I will, I will construct a golden calf in each place. Can you believe the irony? And he will say, this golden calf is the God who brought you out of Egypt. And when they come in worship, I will create a new system of festivals. Everything in their worship will be different. And they will honor Yahweh through this. Oh my gosh, this is what's known throughout the rest of the kings as the sin of Jeroboam. And God goes, oh my goodness, do you feel the husband's heart? We're about to paint a picture of what your God experiences from the inside. In the northern tribes, you are going to see 19 evil kings from eight dynasties. The reason there's so many dynasties is they keep having coup d'etats and killing one another. There are feuds, there is this destruction, and there's this evil. And what the nation is judged upon is the heart of the king setting up false worship in the high places. And king after king after king for 200 years, again and again, will begin to break the covenant that was established in Deuteronomy. Okay? And we'll get to the last prophet in a second. They'll be destroyed by Assyria. And the southern kingdom will follow the line and lineage of David. And unfortunately, there will be 20 kings. Eight will be good. Two of those eight will be very good. And that means they, they and I'll explain why they're very good. And then there's 12 evil kings. And if they are said good in the eyes of the Lord, it will mean that they brought down the worship from the high places. What they began to do, even in Judah, is establish worship in the high places of the mountains. Even though it was forbidden in the law, they would set up worship there. And what ended up happening is it would start under the name of Yahweh, the Lord. And then it would denigrate until they were worshiping the gods of fertility and having shrine prostitutes in these places. And... Foreign women would marry into the line. Their gods would become uh, the gods of Judah. And when kings would arise, at that point in the story, God would say, I determine where your standing is with me based on what you're doing with the idolatry of your heart and what the king is doing with the high places. Now, here's where you get the heart of the Lord, and I'm going to set this up for you. Jeremiah 44, 4, and I'm skipping ahead a little bit in this story. God says to Jeremiah, I sent prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet to you, and you would not hear me. The God who is after oneness in marriage would not stop and would not relent 
Can you feel his jealousy to pull down every high place, every other affection and love that was destroying their hearts, their lives, their families, and their land? And these would be the prophets that come one after another. And I love the story of the prophets because they are like the bleeding heart of God. They are the artists of Scripture, the ones who begin to see. And what they see is twofold. They begin to be the voice seeing God. And when they see God in beauty, God winning the beauty contest as the jealous and most wonderful one. They call the nation again and again back to Deuteronomy into covenant faithfulness and marriage with the one that loves them. But when the people will not respond at the same time like this powerful seeing eye that glimpses of it would open up And when the eye would open up, a flash of a hopeful future would burst into their soul. And it was impossible for them to know the time or the place. But they began to look forward to a hope that was coming. Where God would draw near. And the prophets lived in this tension. In the northern kingdom, in that first century, you will see Elijah and Elisha coming to the people. And God raises them up. And you will feel the heartbeat of the Lord flowing through Elijah. As God in his mercy shuts up the heavens of provision and strikes the land with a famine. Saying, I want your attention. I want your affection. Where are you? Elijah will rise up and he will contend with the other gods who are not gods at all. And he will display this intensity of the Lord as the jealous one. You will feel Elisha, and you will see Elisha do the exact same thing. You'll see prophet after prophet after prophet calling them back. Here's what happens after 200 years of God's heart. The last prophet that will come to the northern kingdom, after God has again and again come to them, is the prophet Hosea. And here's what God will say through Hosea. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go, take to yourself an adulterous wife and children of unfaithfulness, Because the land is guilty of the vilest adultery. Another translation says whoredom in departing from the Lord. God comes physically on a man and says, I want you to experience what it feels like to be the God of this nation. I am not just a God of this nation. I am husband. Hosea, would you enter in to these hundreds of years of what I have experienced with me? 
can you imagine God coming to you and saying, go find the most unfaithful person you possibly can. And then I want you to watch her defame you in front of your eyes. I want you to be humiliated. I want you to feel her rip your heart out. And then I want you to say, return to me, for I will receive you back. Return to me. And Hosea comes and begins to sing the song, return to me, for I will love you. After all of that, golden calves set up, as a mockery to the God who liberated them from slavery. The vilest adultery you can possibly imagine. God says what the worship of wood and stone feels like to me is if you watched your wife be ravished by another lover over and over and over, that's what it feels like to my heart. Do you feel the intensity of this? And yet in Hosea, he says, return to me. I will have mercy. I have torn you, but I will heal you. Oh God, let us feel what you feel. And let us hear the song of of the Father saying, return, I am your maker. Let us hear the song of the husband saying, return, I am your husband. And guess what? They would not return. And God says, all of the curses that I talk to you about will fall upon you. And Assyria, of the empires that will take the world stage, is the most brutal of all. Their policy was to leave no remembrance of the people that they destroyed. And if you were to take sand in your hand and throw it up into the air, so was Israel decimated from the earth, the ten tribes of God's affection. Assyria comes down as the judgment of God. Isaiah is standing there just in the era between Israel's destruction and Jude, and he's prophesying to Judah, and he's warning them, and he's saying, do, Judah, do not take alliance. Do not give in. Watch her. Watch what's happening with Assyria. And yet, Isaiah's getting flashes in his mind again and again and again. This is where we'll stop and pause as Isaiah is waiting with the word of salvation. Amen. Let's take a break. Isaiah, captured with a vision, 
of a hopeful future. The first half of his book, he will be standing there saying, do not be intimidated by Assyria. The second half, he will be seeing a distant oppression that's coming. And even before it happens, a few hundred years, he will be bursting with imagery of redemption. A hopeful and glorious future. The northern ten tribes decimated, destroyed. God's heart is broken. Year after year after year will pass as God continues to send those who will carry his heart, his jealous covenantal heart to be the mouthpiece for a nation saying, please return. Return and won't he love you? Return and won't he have mercy? The last in a long line of these prophets before Utter decimation happens as a young man named Jeremiah. And uh, Jeremiah will be, will you actually just move back one? Jeremiah will actually get this call from the Lord. And when he gets it, God will say, before you were formed in the womb, I knew you. I'm calling you to speak to a nation. I'm making your head, how would you like this call? As hard as flint to bash into a stubborn wall of stone and no one will ever listen to you. Welcome, would you like to enter my story? Jeremiah will be asked to remain unmarried to foreshadow what is about to happen in the story. Jeremiah will be known as the weeping, grieving prophet with a ministry that nobody but God listened to. God chooses the times and the seasons that every person is born. And Jeremiah was chosen to identify with the deepest place of pain in God's heart that he had experienced up to that point in the story, it felt like. And here comes Jeremiah, the last prophet to Judah. And I want to read this passage in a moment. But to understand this passage, you have to get back in your heart squarely the vision of Hosea and Judah. Because God is about to set up an emotional comparison to that scenario 130 years beforehand. And when he makes this comparison, you are going to feel his heart ripped again. Let's read this Jeremiah 3 passage. During the reign of King Josiah, the Lord said to me, 
Have you seen what faithless Israel has done? Remember, Israel is the ten northern tribes. She has gone up on every high hill. And under every spreading tree has committed adultery there. Do you feel this vantage point? I thought that after she had done all this, she would return to me. But she did not. And her unfaithful sister Judah saw it. I gave faithless Israel the torn the ten northern tribes, her certificate of divorce, and I sent her away because of all of her adulteries. Yet I saw her unfaithful sister Judah, those two tribes of David's line, had no fear. She also went out and committed adultery. Because Israel's immorality mattered so little to her, she defiled the land And committed adultery with stone and wood. In spite of all this, her unfaithful sister Judah did not return to me with all her heart, but only in pretense declares the Lord. The Lord said to me, and get this, faithless Israel is more righteous than unfaithful Judah. What about those kings that were good? What about those kings that removed the high place? God says, I gave you 130 more years to listen to my bleeding heart, to listen to my grieving heart. You watched your sister receive the certificate of divorce because of all of her adultery. Yet when you looked, you felt no fear and you would not return to me. I am your husband. And we were going to have children. And our children were going to be all of the families of the earth. You could have been mine and ours could have been the dream of all nations. You were the one I chose. If you would obey me, you would have been my treasured possession, Exodus 19. My holy nation, my kingdom of priests. Oh my Wife. Now this is where the story is unimaginable. God comes and speaks to Jeremiah and says this. After 800 years... After 800 years of watching my bride be ravished on every hilltop in the land of promise, here is my absurdly merciful response. I am going to humble myself. I am going to take out my heart And I am going to take out your heart of stone 
And I am going to give you my heart within you. A heart of flesh that feels what I feel. Give me your heart of stone. And guess what? I am going to become bone of your bone. I am going to take my spirit and put it inside of you. And I'm going to move you to love me as an undefiled, undivided covenant bride forever. And it will not be like the covenant I made after I brought you out of Egypt. No, this will be a new marriage. I will put my law that you could not keep in marriage faithfulness and inscribe it upon your heart. I will give you my spirit. I will give you my heart. And I will forgive your sin. Tell me, is the God of the New Testament the same God of the Old Testament? After 800 years of watching his bride defiled and breaking his heart, he responds by saying, I will do for you what you cannot do yourself. The song of shame that was so loud in their ears, the enemy of sin that had taken root in their heart. And there will come a new Joshua, and his land of promise will be the inside of you. And he will conquer the enemies of diminishment that live in the heart that is his promised land. And he will win back the heart of his bride. And he as the Joshua will, will displace all the sin that has plagued the story since the garden. And he will do it with his own flesh and blood. I marry you. Can you imagine? But it's too little, too late. And in 586, after three successive invasions of Babylon, God's covenant people are marched off. And irony of ironies, they are back in the womb from which they've come where Abraham started. As if they were uncreated. For them, the hopelessness is unimaginable. These three invasions, 605, this is where Jeremiah prophesies from 70 years from now, there's a hope and a future, Jeremiah 29, 11, that we love to quote. One day, Daniel's in his quiet time and reads the scroll of Jeremiah and realizes it's about time. 
<laughs> Isn't that wild? In the second invasion, Daniel's taken in the first. In the second invasion in 597, King Jehoiakim, the last Davidic king, and 11,000 other Jews are taken to Babylon. And Ezekiel is one of them. And Ezekiel will be the prophet in exile. Ezekiel's imagination, he's this straight-laced guy. And one day, God yanks him by his hair up into the heavenlies takes him wheels within wheels. He sees the glory of God and guess what the glory of God is? Unimaginable light and it's a man. And then God takes him through this journey of imagination and shows him a temple more grand than any temple. And guess what? It won't be a temple made by human hands. And then God shows him this valley of dead bones that are his people and says, will you prophesy resurrection life into them? Can these bones live? He's standing in crushed dreams and hopelessness. The third invasion is something that is unimaginable. A two and a half year siege. Jeremiah's down in a dungeon, prison, And women are eating their children. They're so hungry. It's utter decimation. Then they're marched hundreds of miles off. Thankfully, Babylon was not as brutal as Assyria. And a remnant of the people survived this invasion. Oh, the mercy of God for us. Do you feel us hanging on by a thread in the redemptive story? This next vision is literally what this was like for them. This was the death of God in the eyes of Israel. Everything they had known of his faithfulness was stripped away one by one. The land is taken, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The temple is destroyed, Moses and David. And the king is removed. Do you see the covenant stripped from them? This is where in the Psalms it says, we were singing the songs by the rivers, longing to go back to the land. For them, the deepest grief, the place where God would dwell forever, the name in the temple, their promised inheritance in land. How did it slip? Through our hands like that. Wow. And yet, there is this hope arising. There is this hope growing. Daniel will begin to see visions of progressive empires unfolding. God shows him a vision That it will move from Babylon to Persia, from Persia to Greece, and from Greece to the Roman Empire. This hope is arising of God, the sovereign Lord of history, who raises kings and lowers them. God is saying, yes, I know, but will you return to me? I know it looks desperate. The prophets begin to say, there's a new temple coming. There's a new land for us. There's a new king that's on his way, and he's a servant. 
these imaginations, it says that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And it was like these guys were tuning in to Christ coming. Like birth pangs, the closer that it got to the fullness of time, the intensity of their spirit as the artists of the old covenant was awakening. Their imagination was coming online. And it was like flashes of God were coming full color. But they could not put the times and the pictures. They could not reconcile all these things together. And while sitting in the death of their exile, a resurrected imagination was coming forth. Even in the darkest place, hope is arising for your life. The song of diminishment was all around them. The accusation, where is God? He is not good. Who are you? Defiled, defamed, a byword amongst the nations, scattered without land, without people, without homes. Their children have died. Their friends have died. And yet God is arising with another story. The earth will be mine. It is too small a thing that I be a light to the Gentiles. I will, I mean, a light to the Jews. I will be a light to all the Gentiles, hey? It's too small a thing. I have had burning in my heart before the earth began a family. As Persia takes over, the writing is on the wall, and Persia slips in and conquers Babylon. And takes over Babylon's empire. Daniel still exalts it in the middle of that. As Persia takes over, they are the friendliest of the empires. And they have a policy to keep the nations happy. So their policy is to send them back to their lands and relocate them as long as they will pay homage to the Persian empire. Isn't this crazy? How God brings a progressive empire that is kinder and kinder. (laughs) It's kind of wild, isn't it? And within the policy of this, an imagination begins to awaken, and they begin to return to the land. Can you believe it? And just as they were taken away in three progressive invasions, they are brought back in three returns. And here are those returns. The first one is 539, and it's led by this funny guy named Zerubbabel. Isn't that an awesome name? And this is where Haggai and Zechariah are prophesying. Now, the first order of business was that of David's business. We will restore the temple. The problem is, as they build the temple, the older generations begin to weep and they say, this latter glory is not like it was before. And the glory never comes to the temple. Uh-oh, what's happening? <laughs> they build this temple, and Haggai and Zechariah are prophesying, saying, Don't worry about your own homes. Build the home of God. Don't worry about your paneled houses. Make a place for God. And they're saying, do not lose courage. Do not lose heart. They're prophesying as they return. Can you feel the story mounting? The second return is 
the one that Ezra is in. And if it's said that Zerubbabel rebuilds the temple, it could be said that Ezra rebuilds the nation. And he is the one who will write First and Second Chronicles. When you read First and Second Chronicles, it has rosy lenses on it. In fact, they don't even allow the northern ten tribes. Ezra doesn't even allow them to make it into his books. He only follows the beautiful presence lineage of David's line. That is his point. He's giving them back after exile. What is he giving them back? Their story. Do you feel that? He's saying there's a story and he actually gathers the nation and he begins to tell them their history from beginning to end. He says, you are not slaves. I'm giving you back your covenant identity through the story. A generation will awaken. Hope will return when they find the story again. And Ezra is responsible for compiling all the Old Testament canon, and it has not been added to since him. Isn't that incredible? He reads it to the nation and he says, Arise and rejoice. Do not mourn. The story of hope has returned. Oh my goodness. And lastly, the cupbearer to the king of Persia, the guy who tastes all of his wine and makes sure the king won't die, he'll die first. Isn't that a crazy rule? All right, I'll take the poison. I serve you to the death, you know? He gets this deep compassion and he can't stop weeping over his nation and the state. He says, I want to go back and rebuild the walls of defense. And he goes back under the permission of the Persian king. And with one hand, they have a trowel and and they're making bricks in the wall. And the other hand, they have swords to defend. And family by family, they order and rebuild the new nation. Warriors and builders, those who would worship the Lord. And yet, there's this deep sense of emptiness. This is actually the part in the story where this huge legalism creeps in. I mean, what would you do? We've lost everything because we screwed it up. A lot of them had forgot God said, your best efforts aren't going to work in the end of the day anyways. I'm going to marry you. (laughs) I'm taking your heart of stone and I am going to become bone of your bone. But they felt this shame on them. And so not only did they put the law up, but they put up loads of other laws so they would never even get close to tiptoeing the line of disobedience. If we can keep these 53 things, we won't even get close to working on the Sabbath. You know what I'm saying? And this legalism crept in. As well, this disillusionment crept in. They were disappointed that the grandeur of David 
was not their present grandeur. They returned to a land in heaps of stone. Can you imagine a natural disaster hitting Kansas City? All of us flee and we come back to our homes like Joplin. That is the disillusionment that they felt. We're rebuilding our lives. Where is God? Where is his purposes? Where are the days of who? David. I'm looking for David. Where will be the king who will remove the foreign oppression and give us back our sovereignty? The prophets are prophesying, and I want to show you what they're prophesying. There will be a new land in your disillusionment. And it's not going to be just a little patch. It's going to be the whole earth. Do you feel that? The earth is mine, the prophets are saying. Did you forget the word I spoke to Abraham? I will bless all nations. The prophets begin to cry out, there's a new temple and it's not made by hands. And they're wondering, it's the human family. Isaiah says, heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. Where is the home you will make for me? Where will my resting place be? I've got everything, but this is what I choose the heart that is humble and contrite and trembles at my word. I'm looking for a home. Do you feel this? God's goal was never just to dwell in tents and stones. God has his eyes on another temple and Ezekiel was seeing it. The river, the water level is rising. There's a new king. A king that's David's son. Wait a second. Who is this king? Wonderful father, eternal God, everlasting prince of peace, and yet he's a child and the government will rest? Wait a second, Isaiah says there's a branch called God who is righteous And God is growing. What is happening? There's a conquering, zealous warrior. He says, you think you've seen a mighty warrior? Wait till I stir up my own zeal and conquer your enemies and make them a footstool. And yet there is no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. And his beard is being pulled out. Who is this king? And yet all they can remember is David in history. This is very important for the story. And there's a new covenant family. It's not just Jews. It's going to be Gentiles. Isaiah's imagination is filled with the price that it will take to apprehend a new land a new temple, a new king, a new blessing. 
there will be a prize. Right at the end of the Old Covenant, the last words that are spoken about the God who wanted a covenant wife so that he could have children, sons and daughters of the whole earth. Right before this God goes silent for 400 years. And silence is always the place where all of our inner angst comes forth, isn't it? Try being silent for a little while and watching your orphan and your slave tendencies come out. God goes silent as their disillusionment rise, as their Messiah expectation rises, as legalism seizes the nation, and he says not a word after this word. And the kingdom family God ends his words with this. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the who? Fathers to their children. And the hearts of the children to their fathers. Or else I will come and strike the land with the curse. And the one who will come, his name is John. And he's not just a forerunner pioneer. He will be a family member bringing a family reunion where a father in heaven will turn his heart to a son on earth and a son will turn his heart to a daddy and the heavens will break open to fulfill all righteousness and God will redeem the kingdom family plot. The father is after a family. Amen. Lord, we just receive this tonight. 